Hi, everybody. Today, Sweden is hosting a meeting to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the UN Conference on the Human Environment held in Stockholm in June 1972. The Stockholm Conference, as people often call it, and uh, the Stockholm Environmental Institute that I used to be connected with is not named after the city of Stockholm, where it is, uh, um, where it is residing, um, but after the Stockholm Conference, as I was often told by the then director of the Stockholm Environmental Institute. So this conference kick-started in 1972 global awareness of the environment as a global issue for policymakers with links to poverty and development. But have we really made progress since then? And I think that is the key question for today. We constantly read depressing stories about climate change, about the sixth extinction that's going on of animals and plants, of the worsening situation with pollute, uh, pollution in many parts of the world, uh, especially plastics in the oceans, of course, that we also discuss um, in the Planet podcast. Uh, and it is connected with things that are not directly, let's say, environmental, but are just as important, uh, things like inequality and injustice and war. Now, in Stockholm today, uh, the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, who's been critical in the past of uh, what he mentioned, a litany of broken promises, he again urged governments to get their act together, saying, hot air is killing us. And I, I love that, uh, that quote uh, in, in both meanings of hot air. And he also repeated his call to all countries to abandon fossil fuel subsidies and invest in renewable energy, while developed nations should at least double their support to poorer countries to help them cope with more climate shocks. So there you have it. There's a lot of hot air in the talk of politicians. There's a lot of hot air around us in a warming planet. Uh, we have to stop subsidizing fossil fuels, which we do worldwide at a rate of about five, five or six times the amount of subsidies that we give to renewable energy. So we are subsidizing the thing that is killing us. And uh, we need solidarity in the world. And uh, we, we should support uh, the poorer countries that are suffering by a crisis that is created by the richer countries, the richer current countries not only being less affected than the poor countries, but also much more in a position to adapt to the circumstances. That is the picture that we have um, 50 years after the Stockholm Conference. Am I right, Alistair? Spot on, Alex. <laughs> I, I, I'm having trouble hearing you, actually, a little bit. It's a little faint on the volume. We often have this problem, don't we? Yeah, but we had it last time on this one. What I that, can that do... Was a brilliant, that was a brilliant summing up there. Um, and you're right, when you know, the, everybody talking... Everybody talking at this conference. Can I hear? You? Yeah, try again. Uh, is, is this better? I just plucked out all the microphones. I'm now just talking in my telephone like people do in the street. Is that better? Yeah, it's about the same. Yeah, it's about a little bit better. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I don't know what other people think. But yeah, so yeah, that was spot on. Um, and of course, you know, Swedish Prime Minister Magdalena Andersson, who's um, been caught up most of the last few weeks deciding to join NATO for Sweden and break their long, long tradition of independent, of um, neutrality. Also told governments meeting in, in Stockholm today to go home and act, to get pull their fingers out. 
And today in The Guardian, three former UN climate chiefs penned an op-ed headlined, For 50 years, governments have failed to act on climate change. No more excuses. Um, I wish that um, they'd been as vocal in their criticism when they actually had the job, in a way, because uh, it's only after you've left that you can be you can be quite so blunt with governments when you're when you're a diplomat. I think um, this was Christiana Figueres, Eva de Burr, Michael Zamet, Kutayad, uh, Patricia Espinosa, who's currently got the job, didn't join in there signing this um, inevitably. But uh, they those three really know their stuff I've, I've i've working as a journalist i've interviewed all of them uh, many times um so you know their, their words carry weight um but uh, also i was thinking maybe it's worth looking back at what the environmental problems were in 1972 as you said it's kind of it was the first time the the world got together and decided that this was a problem worthy of the world's attention not just of individual governments to try and clean up local oil spills or local pollution or to try and sort out things more on a coordinated sort of planetary basis. You know, um, back in 1972, we had problems like acid rain, didn't we, where, you know, factories in, um, in Europe were, were dropping, were blasting acid rain into the sky, which was then falling in over Stockholm and the Nordic countries especially and killing the trees and, and, the, um, uh, and, and the lakes. You know, birds were dying from DDT, Poisoning, um, which was which was a you know um, just a chemicals uh, chemicals were were doing all sorts of wreaking all sorts of destruction, and there were oil spills, contamination from nuclear weapons testing, and the environmental harm of the Vietnam War. So you know Sweden brought the countries together uh, in 1972 to try and find solutions. There, um, it was held on June the fifth to the sixteenth, 1972. And it was the first global effort to treat the environment as a worldwide policy issue and to try and figure out where to move from there. So in a way, it was a turning point um, to deal with uh, the resources that we all share, like the air. It led to the establishment of the UN Environment Program, which is based in Nairobi. And in a way, you know, in a way, I, th- I was talking to some Dutch students actually earlier today, who were, uh, earlier this week, who were going to travel to Stockholm to to talk at the conference, to to meet delegates there, and they were saying that you know it's a disgrace that we've done so little to combat climate change, and it, it's it's true, it's absolutely terrible. We're dying from hot air, as Antonio Guterres said, but it's it's probably worth remembering that back in 1972, people didn't know about global warming really. Um, it was only sort of on the fringes of the scientific community that uh, people were aware of these rising risks um, or people weren't listening to the scientists, as usually happens. Um, but the build-up of greenhouse gases only gained the international spotlight in the late 1980s, the early 1990s, with the establishment of the UN's uh, panel of climate scientists. So, you know, the, the environment back in the 70s looked very different. It was all about, you know, pesticides and pollution um, and people hadn't really got to grips with this huge crisis of biodiversity and and pollution and uh, of course climate change which are facing now yeah in in a way you could say that those problems were more local and quite a few of those have actually been solved and and sorry for the bad quality of the sound i wish i could switch to roaming but i'm i'm afraid that i might lose you because i was the one starting starting this podcast so you just have to 
bear with me, I'll try to speak uh, loud and clear. Um, uh, but, uh, for instance, the problem of DDT, uh, killing, killing the birds and the wildlife, uh, that is in, 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 at least in Europe, it's, it's completely solved. We don't use it anymore. And uh, the wildlife, the ones that didn't die out, of course, they, they did come back. So you see storks now in the Netherlands that, that you didn't, uh, that I still, I remembered as a child, the last storks. And then for like decades, I didn't see any. And now they are back. Um, so, uh, so, and, and other local problems, I mean, like, uh, old, uh, gas factories, etc., that were highly polluting the ground where we were building new houses, all those kind of problems we got under control. But while we got better at, at, at dealing with local issues, the international problem, it was, it was, it was globalizing actually faster than the world economies were globalizing, but everybody was focused on the world economies, uh, that's, you know, international trade, etc. But we didn't look at international pollution. Well, now we do, but now we don't do anything about it. But at, at least we're aware <laughs> of it. So I guess that is that is progress. Um, and uh, yeah, that's it's it's not that nothing happened in all those years. There was uh, the Millennium Development Goals uh, that all governments uh, agreed to for 15 years that they set in the year 2000, and then. 15 years later in 2015 by the time that we agreed on um uh, on on uh, the paris agreement in more or less well just two months um uh, away from it same but same period we agreed on the sustainable development goals that included um uh, number 13 on climate and quite a few others that are closely related to climate and that are actually doing exactly what was discussed uh, already during um, the Stockholm, the original uh, Stockholm conference in June 1972, that is linking, that is making the connections between issues like poverty and inequality and peace and climate and water and food and health. And I could go on. And all those things that were mentioned there are now much better framed in an, an easy to understand uh, concept. And yeah, and then there's, of course, the Montreal Protocol. Um, it would have been 10% warmer by now, globally, if we didn't agree on the Montreal Protocol in 1987 uh, on uh, stopping the ozone, um, uh, uh, the destruction of the ozone layer, especially in the Southern Hemisphere, um, which is maybe the best example of worldwide action that you can take to tackle a worldwide uh, problem. Um, so... But on climate change, the biggest elephant in the room, uh, as I often mention it, we have been extremely slow in taking any relevant action. It took us uh, 21 annual conferences just to define a uh, limit that we shouldn't pass without saying who was exactly going to do what to, to stop that. And guess what? It is now just, uh, what are we? Um, uh, it is seven years later. And we are on the threshold of passing uh, the most uh, strict of those limits. It, it could happen anywhere in the next, I don't know, five or ten years or so. But um, emissions have increased since we agreed to, to stop doing that. So um, we, we are... We're not living up to our promises, and international cooperation is just a fraction of of, uh, of what it what it should be. Though, 
Um, but at least everyone agrees now uh, that it is beyond doubt that we are to blame for global warming. Even governments like Saudi Arabia and the other OPEC countries that are dependent on exporting oil or gas, they've now dragged their feet and, and, and well, they've, they've, they've held up global action for a long time, but they did agree earlier in this year uh, about practically on the day that uh, Russia invaded Ukraine and therefore completely changed the geographical map of the world and the history of the world, uh, more or less on the same day, a report was published where all countries in the world agreed um, to uh, 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 with the scientists uh, on on how bad the problem is and that it's actually caused by us and that we need to take action. So, yeah, the Republican Party in the U.S. Have, has, of course, been a wrecker, especially Donald Trump with his uh, Chinese hoax uh, that he uh, called it and probably still calls it because I've never seen him coming back on mistakes he made previously. Um, but all these countries, they've now signed up for the Paris Agreement and it, it lays out the, 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 the first blueprint for action uh, but it doesn't have teeth to, to force government to, to really cut emissions. So, yeah, um, that's my take so far. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, you know, in Stockholm, it's, it's, it's kind of set up as sort of a celebration of the 50th anniversary of the conference, but it's also a review of this devastation and broken promises. And, you know, how do you get people who come back year after year to, to, to discuss climate change and biodiversity, which are getting steadily worse? You have big, these big conferences setting out global goals, and governments celebrate their unity, but then they go away and fail to follow up. It's a constant cycle of hope followed by disappointment. Um, even in Paris in 2015, we were told, you know, this isn't the end. Of, this isn't the solution to climate change. This is just kind of the beginning of we've, we've now agreed the blueprint, the way we're going to attack this, um, the way that we're going to ratchet up action every five years. And of course, you come to the first ratchet point in that that system which we came to in Glasgow last year and then they go away again and say we'll we'll do it by the, <laughs> the end of next year or now this year and uh, so far no real government no governments have really followed up so it's again going back into history in 1992 the Rio conference known as the Earth Summit which was a, f a direct follow-up to the Stockholm um, meeting in 72 20 years on that agreed the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. That was the seeds for the Kyoto Protocol in 1997 that, um, that obliged rich countries or was meant to oblige rich countries to cut their emissions. And then the Paris Agreement in 2015. They're all great things. They're all wonderful things, wonderful achievements of diplomacy. Um, but And you go back to 1992 and read some of the speeches. You know, US President George H.W. Bush, the first President Bush, was there in Rio, and he joined the other world leaders in signing the convention, and he hailed an unprecedented era of peace, freedom, and stability in the wake of the end of the Cold War, saying it would spur action to prevent the environment. We're all on the same page now, he says, and we must leave this earth in better condition than we found it, he told this, this earth summit in Rio. But then, of course, you know, for all the rhetoric, um, greenhouse gas emissions continued to climb in the 1990s 
uh, and they failed to reach a goal that was set in Rio of limiting the emissions, at least of rich countries, to 1990 levels by the year 2000. Um, the United States was especially fast because its economic economy boomed in the Clinton years in the 1990s, and, and um, it was a, a long while before U.S. emissions peaked around uh, 2005. And a bit more history too. <laughs> Ten years after that conference, in 2002, I went as a Reuters correspondent to the Earth, the follow-up Earth Summit in Johannesburg, where you know again world leaders agreed new goals including a, a halt to, to stop the decline of fish stocks by 2015. Uh, they got a, they've got a big fail mark for that particular goal um, uh, when <laughs> you know, 2015 came around. Uh, they agreed to expand the Millennium Development Goals to include better sanitation. Uh, you know, some of these things were met, some of them weren't. You know, people have been lifted out of poverty, especially in Asia, uh, under the Millennium Development Goals, they did they did achieve a lot of the, uh, or many of the biggest attacks on poverty of halving the number, proportion of people on living on less than a dollar a day were generally achieved in large parts of the world. But people in sub-Saharan Africa are still, still, for them, it's a um, th this progress has been a very mixed bag. Um, so we're celebrating something that really doesn't deserve the full rollout of the red carpet to celebrate it yeah when i hear you talking about living on a dollar a day i was just reading in bloomberg that um of uh i believe one if i say the number correctly of the people in the u.s earning um uh, a salary of a quarter of a million that i think it was a third that lives paycheck to paycheck i mean that is incredible. If when when in this show we talk about people earning a dollar a day, how can you pay tech, paycheck to paycheck if you're in a quarter of a million? It's in Bloomberg today. Interesting yeah. article. Completely off topic. I fully agree. <laughs> but uh, but gee, I was just thinking of it when we speak about all the the, the literally billions in this planet that live on a dollar a day um, or less. So. Um, and yeah, and I agree to what you say of the 1992 summit. I mean, that was 20 years after Stockholm. That should have been the peace dividend. We, we stopped uh, at that moment. We stopped the Cold War. And there was so much hope and so much promise in those days. Basically, the world was at peace except for uh, the Western Balkans. Um, and uh, there was... Uh, the, the economy was booming and we could at that moment if we then would have taken the right measures for the environment which would have cost a fraction of what it would cost nowadays and even a much much smaller fraction of what it will cost in the future that that was our best window of opportunity and and we just completely we just completely failed it we consumed uh, the peace dividend instead of invested it. So we're in danger now with the, the same cycle of promises and inaction with the Paris Agreement, especially after the Glasgow summit in November, which was, was meant to give a new push for action. Um, so the, the EU climate chief, Frans Timmermans, who's a, who's a Dutchman and who I believe is, is uh, doing really a good job, at least he is outspoken and as blunt as a Dutchman can be, um, which can be pretty effective sometimes. So he was he was summoning uh, Wendy's immortal uh, 
1984 slogan, Where's the Beef? So he, <laughs> he spoke for many this week when he asked fellow ministers from China, from the US and from the UK and from other European nations what they have actually done since COP26 ended. Because their job description isn't that you go to a conference and you make some promises and then you go home and you forget about it. It is once you are in command, you should actually command. That is what you learn in the army and that's what you should learn in politics. Um, uh, I believe that uh, he himself actually, um, and a very interesting example, somebody who does command, that is actually why he's in that position and not a step higher where I believe that he should have been. Sorry for my political... Uh, points that I'm throwing in here at the moment. So Timmermans actually has a point. If you if you take a, a, a quick glance at the, the analysis of the G20 actions that, that have been taken since COP26, it suggests that we're in, in, in blindy territory rather than anything more substantial. So India, Turkey and, and uh, COP27 host Egypt uh, they have yet to land a new climate plan. And Australia and Brazil, Mexico and Indonesia, they all submitted below-par proposals. We talk about previous Australian government, uh, obviously. Um, while Russia and China and Saudi Arabia are well off uh, the pace of anything close to either the one and a half uh, degrees limit or the, the, the higher up uh, two uh, centigrade uh, limit. So still many might ask if an EU that recently labeled gas as green has actually many legs to stand on. Back to you, Alistair. Yeah, <laughs> let's hope for better progress. Actually, one a friend got in touch with me the other day who I used to work for it with at Reuters and we were at the COP in Montreal in 2005 and we went out to a bar. He, my friend was Australian. We went out to a bar I met this guy who was a um, an Australian member of parliament. We sat around with him drinking brouillé French wine for a, for the evening, and now uh, my my friend, uh, former friend from Reuters, sent me a sent me a, a tweet the other day saying, "Do you not do you realize that the guy we had that glass of wine with in in two thousand and five is now is was Anthony Albanese, who's now the prime minister." <laughs> <laughs> I doubt that he remembers that, but we do. <laughs> so, yeah, but so I have a similar story about Robin Cook actually, when he was still the the shadow. Um, uh, do you call that the shadow uh, minister um, uh, for well for the Labour Party for uh, yeah. I think, uh, labour issues or environmental issues? I think labour issues it was. I was drinking a beer with the guy. I just arrived in London. I was a brand new diplomat. It was my first diplomatic posting. And he didn't really know what to do at one of those TUC conferences, and neither did I. We were drinking a beer, just talking about <laughs> absolute nonsense. <laughs> just two months later, the, the guy becomes the, 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 the foreign minister for the UK, is traveling around the world, and I see him every day on television. Says, I, I, I know that guy. Pretty <laughs> handy contact, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so as, a, as an example of what we've been talking about, the need for people to keep their promises, and we've had this example of sand and dust storms um, in recent weeks. Many in the Gulf have been looking up to an apocalyptic orange sky with a flurry of sand and dust storms battering the region. So, you know, there are all sorts of factors at play here. It's um, more dams have, have dried up the water supplies, the rainfall, 
There's warfare, mismanagement of water, the extreme dryness, desertification, um, all a whole host of factors are contributing to this, probably climate change as well. So the storms in these mostly desert countries, which are already in a dust belt, are set to intensify. Um, and then, you know, this, this is a, a big threat to human health, economies and security in the Gulf. You know, they have also the, the, the potential to drive future interstate conflicts um, across the greater Middle East. If we're not careful, it's, it's striking. In, in Doha, they had a, uh, a COP a few years ago, uh, 2012, uh, if I remember right, um, uh, climate meeting where, you know, the, the, it was extraordinary how the, the building boom in the, in the Gulf, in, the, in, in Doha there is, uh, was um, just ex exhausting resources, taking away water. Of course, they've got the World Cup coming there in, in, the, um, in November this year, um, soccer. So we'll see how well they managed to survive that. And then, you know, there was a temporary closure of ports, airports and schools in Iran, Iraq and some Gulf Cooperation Council states, underscoring the extent to which you know, these dust storms have taken a major toll on trade, travel, and just daily life for people in these countries. Yeah, yeah, and it's, I think this, this example of these, um, uh, what, what, what they call these uh, SDSs, so the, the sand and dust storms, uh, as you say, it brings together everything that's, Basically, all the all the um, uh, all the sustainable development goals, all seventeen of them, are here in some kind of cocktail, but then in a downward spiral instead of going upward. So it 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 connects everything. It is it is about uh, water management. It is about war and peace. It is about climate change. It is about health. It is about inequality. It is about uh, bad management as well. And uh, so there's there's a lot of things uh, together, and then if you if you look at at examples of the region of the past days, so this famous Burj Khalifa in in Dubai, this uh, that claims itself it's the only seven star hotel in the world, which uh, those seven stars have been awarded to them uh, by um, the, the owners of the hotel, uh, that was not visible after a, an enormous dust layer just just uh, vanished uh, this oh sorry this is the one in dubai uh, so this the burj khalifa is the the one they changed the name at the last moment that's the highest uh, uh the, the tallest building in the world so the, the burj khalifa was uh was not at all visible um after one of those dust storms and then in the same wider region in tehran in iran the authorities closed schools and government offices, and and there were dozens of flight delays and and cancellations. So, and then Iraq is uh, maybe the country that is most vulnerable to sand and dust storms, which we still also remember in earlier days uh, from uh, the days that uh, Western troops were were fighting them there. It was a serious issue, especially for helicopters. But since March, there's been a storm hitting Iraq roughly every week and then sending thousands of Iraqis to hospitals and the government declaring a national holiday to encourage residents and the government workers to stay home. And uh, at facilities in certain parts of the country, uh, the Iraq's health ministry even uh, resorted to, to stockpiling oxygen canisters to su survive these these uh, sand and dust uh, storms. So this is 
a a a really striking development where a lot of these problems are are just stacking up and we're not talking about poor countries here we're talking about some of the richest uh, per capita countries in the world if you look at a country like Qatar for instance but they are suffering too it's not that you're rich that you can uh, that you can escape this yeah and of course they they are among the highest per capita emitters of greenhouse gases partly because of the that you know they have to have the air conditioning on at incredible rates to keep cool in the summertime there it's um you know i have a friend who lives in dubai who says that he gave up taking his kids to the beach because their feet were burning on the sand and in the summertime um in recent years so it's uh these are ecologically disastrous conditions um just the latest signs of the dangers dangers that climate change pose uh to the middle east and, and more widely you know, the, 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 there are sediments, dust storms clog up, clog up lakes and marshlands, and they sometimes even cover large swathes of the Gulf Waterway, according to one expert um, who is a fellow at the International Institute for Iranian Studies, Banafshes Kenush. I hope I'm pronouncing the name right there. And, of course, he points out that even renewable solar panels malfunction when covered by dust. It makes it very difficult to, to the, the sunlight just doesn't reach the panels, so they don't work. Um, I visited a place one time in the Sahara in Morocco where it's one of the few places where solar panels do work in a desert because they have a river nearby which flows south from the Atlas Mountains with the meltwater from the snow, so you can clean the panels off. But the idea that you can place solar panels in deserts is, is often sort of hampered by that the, the lack of water. Or you know you need to, you need to blow the sand off at least, or it scat it can scour it can scratch the glass um, surfaces of these of the solar panels so they don't work, work properly. So it's it's just part of a this vicious cycle. You know climate change causes the storms, and the storms themselves exacerbate the impacts of climate change. Um, so you know this is a big threat to livelihoods. Um, the World Bank came out with the study saying that sand, these sand and dust storms in the Middle East come with an annual cost of $13 billion. I don't know how they work that out, but that's a lot of money, isn't it? Um, and of course, you know, these storms have always happened, but they seem to be getting worse. Um, and, you know, countries from the Gulf are going to be paying a steeper price as the phenomenon exacerbates because they're quite a you know for international trade um through the strategic waterways and energy supplies of course it's exports of oil and gas that come from the middle east um you know this this is this is a threat to to the wider economy in the gulf yeah exactly and as, as some of you know i've worked for many years on developing the planetary security initiative so the impact of the changes on our planet on security and this is a very clear example here there's a growing threat of violence because of these sand and dust storms. So for years, the the, the armed group uh, ISIL or ISIS or whatever nom de guerre they are using in Iraq has exploited the lack of visibility resulting from these storms to carry out attacks at greater ease. So in May, uh, ISIL carried out deadly attacks in Kirkuk and uh, Dayala uh, provinces where they were targeting farmers who were harvesting crops. And in, in April, they exploited the enormous storms to strike against the Iraqi army. 
um, and uh, they were they were killing several soldiers. So I worked on these issues, like how uh, climate change and the rest of these problems is exacerbating security uh, situations um, all over the world. But in all those conferences where we spoke about, and with all the different forms of where you see this, the idea that armed groups would actually make use of a sand dust storm to do their attacks because they are difficult to, to see and to trace at that moment. That is something that in our wildest dreams never came up in our scenarios. But yeah, these guys are just doing it. So um, even, even in that field, there is, there's, there's developments taking place that uh, the experts in this field didn't foresee. And so you can understand that Iraq security forces have huge difficulties in coping uh, with these sand dust storms uh, because they are now more exposed to terrorist attacks. Um, so with this extreme weather requiring the military to put some of their operations and aerial support on hold, so fighters will have an easier time of exploiting the storms so they can they can wage more frequent attacks, um, uh, especially in, in, in the more remote areas. So this is another one of those negative spirals that um, uh, climate change and mismanagement of the environment uh, leads to much worse environmental situations than we had before, more fear storms and more sand to be in the storm. So you have more, you have more dust, more sand, you have more, uh, 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 more frequent and worse uh, sand dust storms. And that in it in itself leads to all kinds of other problems, including security problems. Yeah, and even beyond those concerns, we experts are warning that these unusual storms could cause uh, conflicts in the region over water. Of course, you know, in the environmental crises related to low rainfall, drought, and declining river levels can serve to heighten tensions between countries. You know, t Turkey. Damming of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers is one factor leading to more desert desertification in Iraq, where water resources have fallen 50%. I don't hear you anymore. Is that just me? You know, Iraq's been digging canals around Bamashir River, a tributary to the Shat al-Arab waterway. And that's that's um, also the midpoint uh, in the Shat al-Arab waterway, which historically has demarcated the boundary between Iran and Iraq. Um, so you know the the whole the whole water is uh, of course the the artery of life in in every all of these countries and um, you know desert countries, and it's um, these sort of things were just not environmental concerns so much back in 1972 when Stockholm was, was first uh, thought of. Um, you know, the water line here in the Shat al-Arab has been split to, down the middle between the two, one expert told Al Jazeera. By artificially altering the border, this can lead to a conflict not, over the, not only over the borders and access to the Shat al-Arab, but also to pollution of Iraq's water supply, uh, this expert told Al Jazeera. And then, you know, these Turkish dams are also adding tension to Ankara's relation with Tehran, with Iranian officials partly attributing the country's drought to Turkey's upstream dam building. 
Of course, Turkey has dismissed such accusations as far from scientific um, and accuses Tehran of not taking a realistic approach, according to a spokesman for the, the foreign ministry in Turkey. Um, but, the, you know, the sand and dust storms regularly terrify people in Iraq and other countries of the region. And the, these things were only intensified because of global warming. Um, which which is decreasing rainfall in many places and helping desertification to spread in, in many parts of the world. So, you know, as you were saying, that we have tensions over waters, um, we have potential for, for armed conflicts. It's, it's not a good recipe, and um, let's hope that the people in Stockholm uh, meeting this week will uh, take account of this sort of factor too when they review their 50 years of um, action and inaction on the climate and uh, environmental, other environmental problems. Yeah, yeah, well spoken. Yeah, I hope so too. I'm, I'm looking at the clock. I promise you we would keep it a half an hour. I think we're already talking, talking uh, more than we should because I know you still need dinner um, and I, I don't want to keep it, uh, keep it from there. Normally I end with a question, have you been in nature? But you are, you are in the middle of a city, right? I'm in the middle of London, right, right near the Thames, yes. So not, not terribly natural at the moment. Lots of people waving flags here today because it's the Queen's um, platinum jubilee, 70 years on the throne. Um, so, but not a, lot, not a lot of traffic around, which is nice, but a, an awful lot of people waving flags and wearing um, uh, Union Jack ties, red, white and blue is everywhere. An awful lot, I'm a bit worried, plastic flags as well, <laughs> really cheap ones. But I guess you've been out in nature, haven't you? Yeah, only a little bit. I've been working like crazy these days. I'm a bit exhausted, to be honest. But I, I took one uh, longer walk because I'm back on the island, and I, I there are always some places I want to say hello to and to check if they're still there. Uh, so I, I did. I did make like a, whatever two or three hour walk in the in the dunes and the forest and the beach, and that that was lovely. I, I wish I would have done it more, but um, yeah, I, I plan to walk a lot uh, this summer. Um, so uh, maybe next week I can uh, I can do a few more walks. Next few days I'm uh, I'm quite busy. Um, uh, so I was in Utrecht today, a beautiful green city in the center of the Netherlands, which I advise anybody to go to if you want to see how you can run a city without cars and just cycles bicycles. And we talk about a city of something like three hundred thousand people. It is just amazing what they're doing in this city and it is so livable and so nice uh, it is it is really an interesting uh, place to to go to um, and I'll be in Brussels tomorrow um, and uh, and after that I'm, I'm I'm not really sure uh, might be might be Paris might be back on the island I might go to the east to to walk a bit um, plans are changing by the hour basically so <laughs> I'll keep you guys informed where uh, where I'm hanging hanging out um, and yeah, I hope that you and I will be back next week on Thursday. I uh, have to quickly look at my agenda if that's going to work. Uh, that means that is Thursday, uh, Thursday nine, right? Uh, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, that's, yep. yeah, that's that should work for out. me. What I'm about for that. you? Will that's you good. be there? That's good. That's fine. Yep. Thanks. Perfect. Looking forward to uh, to catch up. Yeah. Enjoy London, my Thank favorite you. city in the world, together with New York. And um, <laughs> Enjoy the so island. Yeah. Have a good time, and yeah. uh, thanks so much for joining again. And uh, look, looking forward to see and hear you next week.
Yep. Great. Take care. Okay. Have a great week. Bye bye. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>